Welcome to A Penny for Your Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by Sean Bloomgren and Andrew Penny from Central Iowa. On our show, we discuss all things agronomy, high-yield management, and give you real-time updates on what we're seeing and hearing in the field. We will also gain insight from industry professionals as we bring you relevant and timely information on current agronomic practices. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to A Penny for Your Thoughts. Um, super excited. Andrew, would you go ahead and introduce our guest today? Yeah, Sean, I'm, I'm super excited. You know, this is extremely relevant to the, the time of year. You know, we have a lot of nitrogen conversations going on right now. And uh, I'm, I'm excited to have uh, from Kansas State University, Dr. Ignacio Ciampedi. Ignacio, uh, thank you very much for being on here. Looking forward to uh, talking about nitrogen with you. Thank you so much for the invitation, Andrew. This is... Uh... Yeah, super timely conversation. Um, Dr. Ignacio, uh, appreciate you coming on the show today. As we get started, would you give us, um, tell us a little bit about your background, um, where are you from, where'd you go to school? Yeah, um, I went to school, uh, uh, University of Buenos Aires, I mean, in Argentina for my degree. And then after finishing my uh, master's in soil fertility and plant nutrition, um, working mainly with phosphorus and, and a little bit with interactions between nitrogen and phosphorus, and they moved to do my PhD at uh, Purdue University. Oh, nice. So I worked there, yes, I worked there at Purdue for uh, four years between my PhD and, and postdoc. And mainly I was researching on nitrogen uh, in corn. Um, and then after that time, um, I have been here at Kansas State. Uh, Close to ten years, mark passing ten years. Um, yeah, you've gone to several schools that uh, have injured my dreams of success, either in <laughs> basketball or football, at some different point. So, um, yes, yeah. I would say basketball, basketball Purdue, and then for sure, and then football for K State. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, we like to start our show. Uh, it's one of our favorite questions. Um, tell us something that has you excited in agriculture today, not necessarily regarding uh, nitrogen, just what, what has mm -hmm. you excited? Uh, one of the things that is uh, having at least myself quite excited is this idea of um, training new people. I mean, and it's something that we do every day, but it's still something that it kind of uh, gets, uh, I mean, gets myself motivated and excited if we think about um, the responsibility that we have as uh, researchers and teachers and, and people that we are here at the university, training and training the next generation of young people and people that's going to be the, uh, helping to solve problems in the next coming 20 to 50 years. That is one of the things that is quite exciting, uh, excited on my end. And then if yeah. you think about that, it's also about this idea of the complexity that we will be facing how we need to start training people that they have skills on analytics, um, uh, crop modeling, remote sensing, uh, and really kind of integrating all these technologies uh, to understand how to solve complex problems in agriculture. That's yeah. one of my favorite answers we've ever gotten. <laughs> I think you know, we, well, we you know we we always talk about a technology or you know some emerging yeah. thing, and and but but really, I mean, the idea of training the next 
generation is critical. And you're right, the problems are getting more complex and um, uh, data sciences are going to play a bigger role. So no, really appreciate that. Um, I I love that answer too. I mean, when when I was at Iowa State, I was just starting to dabble into teaching, right? And and I I got to saw the progression of, I mean, we have... We have uh, people from the you know town living in towns coming in and, and studying mm-hmm. agronomy. We have we have more females in the industry, and so it's just it's awesome to see all these people not necessarily growing up on a farm be be a part of agriculture and and learn it to you know again like you said teach it the next twenty to fifty years. Love it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we break our show into do to, into two different parts. Um, Andrew, let's go ahead and uh, talk about the science behind nitrogen management. Yeah, so I'm looking forward to this conversation. You know, extremely relevant. Uh, you know, with with the time of the year it is. Um, looking forward to uh, talk about a lot of the research you've done, Ignacio. Um, but I, I would say let's start. You know, th- this first part we always talk about the science behind nitrogen. You know, uh, the whole the whole process involved in, you know, that that really complicated nitrogen cycle. So I, I would say, you know, it's always easier with pictures, but, you know, just, just to get, mm-hmm. to, to get everybody on the same page, let, let's start with just the nitrogen cycle. You know, if, if we could picture um, that, that in front of us, just what, what are the, the, the main uh, points within that nitrogen cycle that we'll, we'll probably be touching on? Yeah, I would say most of the things that we, we really work and our lab is, is, is really trying to kind of uh, take the lead on, on many complex approaches on the nitrogen cycle is looking at all the process that it goes from the moment or movement of nitrogen from the soil to the plant. So discussing a little bit about can we recover more nitrogen? Can we increase the uptake of nitrogen from plants? And what we are saying that is because if we can increase and, and make those plants more efficient, then we might be able to start reducing the fertilization and the dependency to nitrogen fertilizers. So I mean, we, when you think about the, the races on the cost of the seeds, when you look at the increase on the cost of the fertilizers, um, I will say that not only here in the U.S., but if you look around the, uh, the world, the idea of trying to understand how we can reduce that dependency to fertilization is critical. So that's one of the main concepts that we are, we are studying in many, many of the crops. And the second component is also once the nitrogen is inside of the plant, what is the best way to convert that nitrogen into yield? Because yeah. at the end of the day, we love the idea of, keep, I mean, moving and capturing more nitrogen, of course, to reduce that environmental footprint and to reduce the impact of agriculture in the environment. But the second component, the most excited for farmers is, let's make sure that we put the nitrogen into work. Let's make sure that <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, absolutely. That, that's important. Let's I mean, make just, sure that we can make, yeah, let's make sure that we can make some yield. Yeah. yeah I mean, you, you bring up a good point. It, it goes back to like leaf tissue analysis, right? It, just because exactly. you're capturing more nitrogen doesn't mean you're converting it to, to yield, right? That's a, that's a big difference. Exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah. It's, it's a really good segue. Um, why is nitrogen so important? I mean, I'm just seeing nitrogen in so many forms. I mean, it sounds like uh, you probably didn't, I mean, you encounter someone that really loves nitrogen, but not only nitrogen per se. I mean, I think that nitrogen is one of the resources. When we talk about nitrogen, we, need, we, we cannot forget the idea of uh, radiation, solar radiation, yeah. light, uh, water, uh, other nutrients. Because at the end of the day, a farmer works in a field and doesn't work only with nitrogen. Uh-huh. Okay, the farmer works in the field, and as we have this year, we have high extreme temperature conditions. We have many sunny days. We have uh, many problems in many sections of the growing season with lack of water. 
And uh, from my side, I we are trying to understand how we can start looking at the entire system. And nitrogen is a critical component. And why nitrogen is because when you start looking at multiple crops, and I'm not talking about corn only, but I'm talking about corn, we can talk about sorghum, we can talk about wheat, we can talk about canola, we can we can name crops. And you will see that in many situations, the amount of nitrogen that the crop can capture, it really helps the plant uh, to become more efficient. And we, are, we have uh, some studies where there is one study that is very close to be published that is going to show that that nitrogen status that the plant achieve, for example, um, in corn is anti-flowering, is really one of the key factors helping the plant to increase the formation of kernels. Huh. So it doesn't seem too relevant because if someone say, well, kernels are small, doesn't mean that, I mean, do I need that much nitrogen when the kernels are so small? Many people will say there is a lot of research and you will say no. But it's extremely interesting to see that the plant sense, the plant looks at how much nitrogen is available in the system. And based on that, it's also affecting that potential kernel number. And we know how critical is kernel number for corn yeah, on absolutely. yield formation. Yeah. And that tells you something. Now that tells you that nitrogen is key. Right. Uh, and it tells you, and the second component that we, we did a lot of research in the last 10 years is if you think about that you can increase that nitrogen capture. So if you increase the amount of nitrogen in the plant by flowering time, that plant becomes more resilient. Mm. Because when you are getting into the post-flowering, okay, if you are moving from mid-July in many of our environments to the end of the season, that plant depends less in the amount of nitrogen that is available and depends a little bit less on the environment. So it kind of it's a way to kind of have a, another extra crop insurance. So that plant basically has another element to kind of a buffer potential yield losses. And we are seeing that in many of our studies. Yeah. And I, I love that answer. Uh, you know, uh, and, and my, some of my background is pathology and physiology. And whenever I'm talking nitrogen, just to, to un- help growers understand how important it is, I, I think we all know it's important, right? But when it's, when you have four, uh, t- discussing the chlorophyll molecule, right? When you have four atoms mm-hmm. of nitrogen surrounding magnesium, uh, around a chlorophyll molecule, I think that gives a pretty good idea of of the the importance of not wanting to short nitrogen or, or you know you know d- depending on weather obviously fall short of nitrogen. So uh-huh. l- love that answer. Um, you know, kind of kind of to build on some of the discussion of of you know we often talk about nitrogen use efficiency, right? What why yeah. why is it important to understand you know just the the importance and or differences of ammonium versus nitrate? I would say it's critical because. Um, and from our, from our opinion is, is there are two forms. They are both relevant. So when you look at the, way, the, 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 the most available form that usually the plant spend less energy is usually the ammonium. When you look at the most available form in the soil is usually nitrate. But the most critical component when I discuss with farmers about these concepts, I always try to move the conversation uh, mainly to say, okay, what we really want at the end of the day, we want to make sure the plants can are able to capture most of the nitrogen that is available in the soil and reduce any kind of a losses connected to leaching uh, because that those roots were not developed quickly and then the nitrogen is getting lost in the system or avoid problems that we apply too much nitrogen early season and the plant didn't use it 
So it's basically lost via volatilization or nitrification. So for us, we need to start rethinking some of our systems, right? Imagine that we are playing kind of a playing casino in many situations. You just go to the field, you put um, X amount, no, 150 to 100 pounds. Sometimes we just put everything beginning of the growing season and you are gambling. You are just gambling, no? I mean, looking at the situations that we have this year, how many fields and locations you might got estimated that, oh, I would probably get a 250 bushel corn and we just finished based on these drought conditions, heat um, conditions. We are finishing in some fields with 180, 150 bushels. Um, so for me, that is another critical component that we need to get back. I mean, we need to get back to say how we can increase the use of nitrogen because it's extremely relevant. And sometimes we are just not controlling much the environment. I would say that we have minimum control on the weather. And then putting all that nitrogen early in the season, it's just a lot, a lot of risk. And I think that we need to start educating more about how we are managing that, that nitrogen. Yeah, this is a, I mean, that's a, a perfect segue to kind of the question. So at a high level, we won't get too far into the weeds because it could be an entire mm-hmm. discussion. But would you would you just talk briefly about the available forms of nitrogen that row crop farmers are using today and maybe a quick pros and cons list of um, those different types? Yeah, I mean, we, you will see that. I mean, and we can compare even across many countries because we have experience looking this into, into many situations. I mean, um, and you will see like South America guys, they usually just go with urea. They go with solid forms, um, and they sometimes they do the same. They just go early, most of the nitrogen planting. Uh, why? Because it's less expensive. <laughs> Simple as that. Um, is that's, it the often, best? that's often a component that's probably weighted <laughs> too heavily is just, is just the price. Yeah. <laughs> it is a price. No, at the end of the day, it is a price, but is it the best? Uh, I would say probably not. And then if you want to put all your nitrogen on, um, earlier planting, try to use uh, protective urea or cover urea with something yeah. that will help to have a slow release notch. Okay. The second component is the li- liquid forms. So if you look at UAN or urea ammonium nitrate, or if you look at all the, the liquid forms, I kind of tend to like those liquid forms when you start moving into the in-season applications. Yep. And then you go to, for example, V6 citrus, or some guys are doing, for example, V10, V12, like getting really in high season, doing like three splits. And I tend to say, I mean, that for those high, I mean, most of the times that they are high technology farmers, that they can go in that direction of applying, for example, 50% at planting, then they might do 25, 30 at V6, and then they might do another 25 at V10, V12, for those guys, they have a little more control on knowing the weather and trying to understand what is going to happen um, if you are planning to expect any kind of a drought condition, heat, because then you can, I mean, we always need to, to understand that uh, as plant density, as any input, you know, nitrogen is always a positive factor, always a positive factor if we have good weather conditions. Yeah. When we have bad weather conditions, like what happened in many of this year, by applying more nitrogen, sometimes we might get a negative effect. Hmm. And let me explain a little bit. The negative effect comes from, you are oversizing. You are basically 
promoting growth, increasing the plant size, increasing the amount of leaf and, and leaf area. But if you have a lot of biomass, if you have a lot of plant that needs to use a lot of water, when it gets to flowering time, it's running out of water. Yeah. And if it's running out of water to form the kernels and to produce yields, the most likely outcome is that that nitrogen was really not helping you. Yep. But in fact, what it did, it did to create more biomass and you basically tend to oversize. You have bigger plants for the amount of water that you have available. So that's why I like sometimes to, to work a little bit with the in-season idea of applying nitrogen because you kind of start thinking about, do I need an extra nitrogen in this season or can I just keep it? And then I will probably most likely, I will not create any problems and I will save some money on the profit side. Uh, as you know, many here, many of the farmers here in the U.S., they go with the uh, anhydrous ammonia, right? They just go with the highest percentage of nitrogen applied in fall or early in the spring. And when you look at the cost per unit of nitrogen, it's still one of the less expensive sources. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a really interesting conversation. It's something when Andrew and I started this podcast um, our goal is really to educate ourselves and our listeners with the idea of let's let's farm more efficiently and let's let's seek high yields. And that the anhydrous ammonia conversation has been a really interesting one because certainly it's cost effective. Um, but we often question: is it is it is it the most yield effective? Um, and especially when we get into these, um, you know, into kind of some of the the wild weather patterns we're having, you know, we just we just see risk um, in some of that. Um, around the idea of mineralization, um, I guess just at a high level, uh, talk talk a little bit about how mineralization should fit into a nitrogen discussion. Well. I would say for our listeners, uh, if we have a better ways to predict mineralization, I think that we will be doing a much better job on, on really fertilizing, managing nitrogen in many of our crops. Because for us, when, when someone needs to think about mineralization is what many people like to think about this black box. Uh, why I'm saying that is because in many situations, we tend to have estimates, uh, numbers of mineralization. Yeah. But those mineralization numbers depend on the growing season and depends on the weather conditions mainly. Uh, and we have some studies that we see that in the same environments, mineralization in one specific soil could go from 60 pound nitrogen contribution in the season to 120. So, so the, the, the amount of contribution from mineralization is kind of this uncertainty. Uh, and when you are thinking about estimating your nitrogen rate, it's really hard to, to use that number that is giving you so much variability that you will say, if I'm trying to produce an 180 bushel corn, uh, I need to play with the number. And maybe the number is, uh, I will just make an estimate that I might get um, 70, 80 pounds of nitrogen from the soil, um, looking at my fertilizer use efficiency. And then you start trying to estimate what is the optimal nitrogen rate. But at the end of the day, uh, mineralization, the amount of nitrogen coming in from the soil and the timing. Uh -huh. That is a second component that we never really discuss much. The timing is, is also quite different. I mean, we have seen and we have doing sampling, soil sampling for the last two or three, far, four growing seasons. And you look at weekly sampling and you will start looking at peak of mineralization in some conditions that you have 
early June, and in some environments, it's usually like late June. And some of those differences on the timing of mineralization also change the way how easy and how effective the plant can use a notch. But I think that that is one of the things that I hope that we can become better. And it's one of the numbers or process or quantity estimate that we really need to improve in order really to help us to manage more efficient nitrogen for, for many of our crops. Yeah. And, and, and to build on that, you know, think, thinking about the nitrogen cycle, right? We have, we have nitrification, so the converting of, uh, conversion of ammonium to nitrate, right? And, and we have this mineralization process. Um, how long do these processes take and, and what's the biggest impact? You know, we're out there, obviously we can't predict mother nature, right? But we can at least in season understand what's going on with these processes based on soil temperature and mm -hmm. moisture. So, so you know, what's the rough estimate on, on you know, if, if we're trying to predict how much more side dressing we need or how much nitrogen we've lost, you know, and or has converted, what should we be thinking about in the back of our heads, you know, environmental conditions that favor these these processes? That's an excellent question. I mean, and if you look at in many of our in many of our environments, we will say, for example, temperature. So temperature is one of the factors that helps. I mean, when you are looking at priming and releasing that nitrogen from the organic matter, uh, that is one of the factors. And the second one is the humidity, you know, the soil moisture. Um, and again, as, as every as every biological process, you no, know, they have an optimum. So if you have a higher temperature, higher than the optimal then that process probably gets uh, compromised. I mean, similar on the situations that you have excess of water. Yeah. When you have flooding condition, that flooding condition basically will just um, put that nitrogen into a form that is not used. And then in many situations, a uh, lack of oxygen uh, is another factor that then you will start seeing more losses of nitrogen via denitrification. Uh, and then you will see problems of those roots that they cannot capture because they don't have enough oxygen and that solubility of, uh, of that nutrient in oxygen is less soluble compared to when you have oxygen. So it's almost like I the Goldilocks zone, isn't it? Yes, exactly. And it's like, I mean, imagine that you have always like your optimal. So it's not a lot of uh, water, but it's enough. Yeah. So you are in the optimal situation and it's not enough. It's not a really not low or not too high temperature. So yeah. you have an optimal situation. So that's why that timing, no. It's different every year because yeah, those peaks of mineralization are not exactly always the same. Yeah. They depend. A couple of years ago, we were seeing that when we have high temperatures and moisture, we usually have a really high peak of mineralization coming out late May, early June. Last couple of years, we have that peak of mineralization sometimes moving to mid to late June. Mm -hmm. So, and then that changes the way that the plant uses that that much. And that also changes some of the things that we can discuss later on, on the soybean side too, because that changes how much that nitrogen is affecting the ability of the plant to fix nitrogen. Yeah. Well, you, you had a, a, a great segue into, into our, our next discussion topic, you know, talking about the whole carbon to nitrogen ratio. And I, I know you've done a lot of research looking at the impact of residual nitrogen in, you know, going into a corn crop, going into a soybean crop. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah. before we get started and dig deep into that, what, let, let's talk about carbon to nitrogen ratio and why, that, why that's important. It is important because we have this concept. Uh, I don't know how many times you guys have heard about the situation of the uh, nitrogen credit. Yep. Right? That is a concept that is going around for... <laughs> <laughs> and this is still, yeah. and this is still there, right? Many people is like saying, if you are going, if you do corn soybean, uh, you have a nitrogen credit. Yeah. 
Well, I'm, I'm glad I was State debunked, debunked <laughs> that, and I'm sure you've done that, debunked that in, in your I, research as well, right? I mean, many times, because, I mean, I always try to explain the following. I think that we need to, uh, I like the concept, but we need to change the terminology. Yep. We need mm. to probably not talk about nitrogen credit, but we should probably talk about it's a cropping system effect. It's the effect of the rotation. So when we are going from soybeans to corn, that carbon-nitrogen ratio is, is more favorable. So you have that nitrogen that is, is a smaller ratio, so you have nitrogen coming out and it's being released for the corn next growing season much faster. The, much faster than what? Much, much faster than if you are doing corn and corn. Because when you are doing corn and corn, that carbon-nitrogen ratio on the, uh, on the residues is larger, and then most of your nitrogen late season that is on the residue it will be tied up. And it's gonna be more immobilized, and because of that, when you go and plant your, I mean, your next next uh, corn in the season, what will happen is that you might need to give a little bit more kick. So you might need to increase your end rates for 20, 30 more pounds, so you can get that response. But the main concept is to say, when we go back and we look at the soybeans, we are not really leaving too much nitrogen behind. Right. Most of the, our soybean crops. They fix nitrogen. But I always tell to everyone that if you want to know if you are living a positive balance in the soil, I will tell you that in many of our studies, we're not living so much of a positive balance. So what happens if soybeans, they harvest 70% of the nitrogen that they consume, the plant is being removed in the seeds. So every time that the farmers are taking away one track, out of the field, they remove 70% of all the nitrogen. Mm. Where is that nitrogen coming from? Well, many will say, yeah, fixation. What does fixation mean? Well, the plant established this symbiosis with microorganisms, soil microorganisms, and those microbes, they help to fix nitrogen. Perfect. Sounds like an excellent process, win-win. <laughs> but the, the problem idea. is, <laughs> yeah, the idea is in the theory, in the books, looks awesome. The problem is that in many situations, like any mathematical calculation, in order to get a, a, a balance that is positive, then you will need to fix 80, more than 70% of nitrogen, which means that if a soybean crop uh, uptakes three or 400 pounds of nitrogen, 70 plus percent, not 70, 70 plus percent, more than 70% needs to come from fixation. Our data shows because we have a study that we look at more than 50 locations across the entire US, that in many situations, uh, our fixation are below 60%. Mm. Which if, even if we don't, even if we want to consider potentially that roots, we probably are closer to 70. But what I'm trying to say is that it's hard to see or to find that we might uh, encounter positive balances. So, uh, and I'm saying this because we need to kind of change our mentality of calling this a nitrogen credit uh, uh, for something that is coming from soybean to corn, but it's more like kind of a, a, a carbon nitrogen effect. It's a, if you want to, you can call a rotation effect because a nitrogen that is going to corn, I mean, from soybean residue is more available and yeah. simple as that. We'll talk about it when we talk about management, but I've got 
<laughs> I feel like I have a bunch more questions. Um, you've done a lot of research on residual nitrogen in corn and soybeans. Um, what environmental conditions lead to residual nitrogen? That's an excellent question. I mean, like uh, uh, this year is an excellent example, right? <laughs> uh, how many farmers they were basically thinking, estimating for high yields, and they went ahead and they applied nitrogen early season. And then when you look at the situations that we have today, last couple of weeks with heat, and then the some of the environments that we face on Missouri and, and some places in Iowa with some of the drought conditions, your yield potential is quite lower than expected. Yeah, uh, and then hopefully that that will be corrected on the cam on the next coming estimations. But yeah, um, well, that's, but a, good, I would that's say, a good question. I mean, <laughs> you look back to some of these years that we've had tremendous corn yields following a dry year, and and there's often yeah. the question how how the heck did that happen? And I mean, I mean, it's, yeah. you get you look at potassium deficiency when you're in drought conditions, right? Nitrogen deficiency and all that stuff. You know, if you don't have moisture to move that down through the soil profile, it's going to bind to those soil colloids, right, and and not get taken up. Exactly. So yeah, exactly, exactly. And then the, the other concept is, even in the situations that you are over applying nitrogen, because at this point, many of these environments that we have a stress, we tend to over apply. Uh, and then what happens now is that um, this was one case study or one example that you are leaving nitrogen, residual nitrogen for next coming season. Yeah, yeah. Um, and most likely that nitrogen will be there. So when we start looking at soil profile the next year, the next growing season around April, you will start seeing quite a bit of nitrogen still available on the soil that it was just coming from a little bit of the over application, if you want to say yeah. in some way, yeah. that we have done from this year because we have a drought condition. Yep. Simple so, as that. So so what's what's the impact? You know, obviously this would probably be a, a potential benefit in corn on corn situations, but thinking about that that fixation process with, with the rhizobi and soybeans, you know, corn going into soy. I would almost think that would be a detriment. So, so what's the impact if, if we're going from corn to soy and we have leftover nitrogen? That's an excellent question. In fact, because we have a study that we did, there was one location that we got the data. These guys were working for the last almost 20, 30 years on looking at corn soy rotations. And, and we did kind of added that this idea of a balance. So how much nitrogen you apply, how much nitrogen you remove. And most of our budgets, uh, when you look at the end of the season, we never leave more than 50 pounds. I would say that usually it was less than 50 pounds. And in those situations, that we, when you have less than 50 pounds of residual nitrogen from corn to soybean, we haven't seen any negative effect on the soybean side. I mean, we have exactly the same hypothesis that you just mentioned. We say, oh, if we leave um, a lot of nitrogen, that soybean fixation might come be compromised. Why? Simple as when you put soybean into a, an environment or into a soil condition with a lot of nitrogen, that plant is capturing nitrogen and saying, I don't need, I don't need any microbes. Yeah. It just, I can keep yeah. doing this and I become lazy. Uh, and it becomes lazy with a purpose because anytime that needs to fix nitrogen in, in this symbiosis, it needs to pay the cost. Yeah. It needs to pay a, car a carbon cost to the microbes. So, um, the, I mean, the, I would say it's still, the, the beauty about that study is telling us that even with some surplus of less than 50 pounds, which usually is, is what happens in many situations like this year, probably many fields, we still are seeing that we are not compromising in, in any ways. I mean, to the next year, soybean crop. That's awesome. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just insert my question here because it's one that I'm kind of <laughs> stuck on. So the idea of nitrogen use efficiency 
and the idea of residual or leftover nitrogen in a field. So if the the instance that you're talking about where maybe I applied 250 pounds of nitrogen with the intention of 250 bushels, and I only mm-hmm. uh, created 180 because of some other limiting factor. So then would it be... A, how are we supposed to think about that on a on an annual basis, you know, where the the central Iowa corridor that we're in, you know, we'll, we'll see yields, um, you know, as low as 180 or 200 bushels. And in, and in some cases up to, you know, we're, we're knocking on the door of 300. So how would you encourage us to think about calculating that idea of residual or carryover nitrogen? Is that around a, an NUE score or how do you think about that? No, the simple way to do it, because I think that this, any farmer can do this, is like, like you always, you can get access to a yield monitor, right? Many of us, I mean, at this point, they get access to any yield monitor data. So if they have any information of how much nitrogen you are applying in the field, because many times you have these uh, as applied maps. Yeah. So then you start looking at your field, right? And then you can look at how much nitrogen you apply in different sections of the field. Um, and if you look at your yields, um, it can be easily that we start looking at using some protein values. Most of the protein value for corn is usually very constant. So in many situations, I mean, even if you use this, um, the one pumper bushel, uh, in many situations, you will be quite close. So, and as you were saying, you know, right, right on that, on that alley of thinking, oh, I, I apply um, 180, but I still remove uh, maybe only 150, then my surplus is 30 pounds. <laughs> And you can start looking at that. Of course, I mean, in the future, uh, and this is something that we also have worked in the past years, and I think that is coming out very soon, uh, we will start getting access to protein maps. Oh, and this is something that there will be new, and, and it's something that is a quite new technology that is already including in some combines that they are protein sensors. Huh, that's awesome. So now you will be able to, farmers in the future will be able to get not only just your regular yield monitor map, but also you will be able to get a protein map, which basically is telling is telling you, okay, how much nitrogen are you removing in many sections of the field? Yeah. And for you, if you want to do a quick calculation, nothing too scientific, not, nothing too complex, you just grab your as-applied layer early season versus this protein map, and you just can say input minus output. Yeah. Man, yeah. I, I love that answer. That's, well, and it goes, I mean, it goes, it goes right into the concept of, you know, I know at least in a lot of cases, we're not even variable rating our nitrogen application, right? We pick a, yeah. we pick a rate and we yeah. put it on and it makes me wonder how much opportunity are we leaving in the field by yeah. not optimizing yeah. those, you know, those, exactly. those rates and, yeah. and, um, yeah, that's exactly. fascinating. I'm trying to drag us into the management side <laughs> yeah. and we're still talking. Science, so I apologize. Well, Just, we have, we have one final question to, to wrap up the part one of the, yeah. the science questions. And, and it's, uh, coming from a, a physiology nerd. This, this one's, uh, you know, I'm excited <laughs> about, especially regarding some of your paper, you know, you've looked at a lot of creating these algorithms and, and trying to define and, and predict nitrogen use and, and, you know, how much we'll need based on yield potential and all that. Mm-hmm. But I found it very interesting, uh, you know, you, you discussed in one of your papers looking at the solar radiation. And, you know, I've yep. had that conversation in the last few years with some of the environmental conditions we've had. But for, from your point of view, what, what have you seen? What's the impact of solar radiation on corn yield and nitrogen uptake? Uh, for me, it's critical because when you think about uh, the way that the plant grows, uh, everything is connected to the fraction of radiation that the plant intercepts. When you think about how much radiation the plant intercepts and how much radiation is being converted into biomass, 
there is a, always a close relationship to that to, with the amount of nitrogen that the plant cannot take. There is always this con concept from the physiology. So if you want to go to the traditional physiology that nitrogen equals biomass. Unless the plant is growing, and unless the plant is growing and has a, a supply of uh, nitrogen in the soil, the plant is not really taking up nitrogen. And unless we have the plant is in receiving radiation, intercepting the radiation, and converting the radi that radiation into biomass, I mean, that plant is not really capturing nitrogen. And it's not, not, really, not really able to, to put any yields, as simple as that. Yeah, love it. Well, uh, that's, that's a wrap on uh, part one. Yeah, I, uh, this is, I, it's, it's interesting. It seems like, I like how we started the show talking about how important all of the components are, but it seems like nitrogen right now is just such a, um, a hot topic of conversation. Yeah. When should we apply? How much should we apply? I really appreciate you giving us kind of a, a, a baseline to talk about, you know, management decisions. Cause I know for a lot of us, um, uh, I joke that I'm always the least educated person on these on this podcast, um, but we, you know, we're we're having a lot of really in depth conversations about how to think about where we put what form of nitrogen, and I and I love when you said compare input to output because I think that's the conversation we really want to drive. At some point, we need to think less about total volume of nitrogen and more about yeah. mechanisms of delivery when the plant wants it and measuring against output. So. Um, yeah, I, this was great. Dr. Um, Ignacio, thank you for joining us and uh, we'll be back and we'll talk about management. Thank you for joining us on another episode of A Penny for Your Thoughts. We love your feedback. Please email us at apennyforyourthoughts at gmail.com. That's a penny, the number four, your thoughts at gmail.com or reach out to Andrew and I on our social media. Thank you for tuning in.